Would anyone in here buy a car if it had no way of starting, moving, or driving? Of course not. Because the purpose for, the essential function of a car is to get us from one place to another. And if it doesn't perform this most basic and essential of tasks, it's useless, right? Would you purchase paper towels? That's a tongue twister. Would you purchase paper towels if they didn't clean, wipe, or soak up liquids? Of course not, because paper towels exist for one thing, wiping stuff up. And if a paper towel didn't absorb or clean or wipe stuff up, they would be useless because they do not serve any essential purpose or perform any function. How many of us in here have cell phones? I guess it would be easier to say who doesn't have a cell phone, right? Who doesn't have a cell phone? Would you pay a monthly fee for that cell phone if it didn't have any capacity for communication? You couldn't text on it, couldn't call on it, couldn't email on it. Would you, would you pay a monthly fee for that? Of course not. And why is that? Because if a phone doesn't have the ability to communicate with other phones via talk or text, that phone would be useless. It wouldn't serve any purpose. And so we wouldn't pay the exorbitant fees that we all do to possess them, right? Now, we could keep going on and on and on, right? Everything has some essential function or purpose without which it would be useless. Would you buy a pair of scissors if they weren't sharp enough to cut anything? I'd love to say, of course not, but if any of you have or work with children... You know the pain of using those child-friendly scissors? You ever tried to use those things? Those ones that are made of like plastic that don't actually cut anything? They just fold the paper as you try to cut through them? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ryan, you know. If you're anything like me, I think, why did I even bother getting these? They serve no purpose or no, they don't have any function. Why do we bother buying and maintaining things in life in general? Only because they serve some useful function or purpose in our lives. If they didn't serve a purpose, or if they don't serve a purpose, they would be utterly useless to us, no good to us, and we would throw them out, right? In like manner, the Christian, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, those who have truly repented of their sin and bowed their knee to King Jesus, turning to him in trust and in faith, the Savior of the world, those who are characterized by the Beatitudes that we have worked our way through, the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who practice meekness as a result, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who exhibit mercy, who are pure in heart, meaning singularly focused on exalting and serving the Lord, those who promote peace and as a result of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, undergo sufferings and trials and persecutions in and from and by the hands of the wicked in the world, these, these real and true Christians, the true children of Christ by grace through faith in him, we serve a purpose for and have a function in, essential functions in the world that we live in. 
And as we learn, as we will learn from the teachings of Christ in our text, those who claim to follow Jesus or to be servants of Jesus or to have faith in Jesus without living out these most basic and essential and indispensable functions are the equivalent of plastic scissors that don't cut paper. They are the equivalent of cars that can't drive, phones with no capacity for communication. So if this is the case, that we have primary and fundamental essential qualities and functions to perform in this world without which we are useless to it and useless in it, what are those functions? Jesus gives them both to us in this text, salt and light. Salt and light. Christians serve as both salt and light in, in and to the world. And for us to shirk or for us to avoid any, both, either of these basic roles will serve to prove that either A, you aren't a Christian at all, or B, that you must gather and gain an understanding of your primary purpose while you live in this world. Stop listening to the enemy. Stop listening to the culture that constantly works to get you to keep from living out your function of salt and light in the world. You see, Satan's great purpose for all of you and for, all, and for me is to make us utterly and absolutely useless in and to the world we live in. And so here's what we must ensure that we do. Keep living as salt and light and do not let Satan cause us not to. Because this, living out our essential functions of salt and light, leads to our ultimate purpose, our ultimate calling, which is to promote the exaltation, to promote the magnification of our most glorious and wonderful and highly exalted Lord, our Father in heaven. So, let us take a look at these two functions that we are to serve in this world. The first is, as we see in Matthew 5.13, salt. You see what Jesus says in the first verse. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. See those three words, you, salt, earth. There's quite a lot packed into this little phrase. For us, in our day, salt is pretty cheap, right? We can go to the grocery store and we can buy it in salt shakers. We can buy it in boxes. We can buy it in those little glass rock salt containers where you get to twist it. That's pretty fun to do. We can buy it in plastic bottles with a number of options for pouring it out. You got the little holes in case you're eating french fries and you just want to put a little bit of salt, but you also have that little spout for when you're cooking and you need to put a whole lot more and you don't have time to just go through the little holes. Salt is everywhere. It's on tables at restaurants. It's in our spice racks. It's at our dining tables. For us, it's everywhere. For us, it's easily accessible and it's rather inexpensive. However... If you try to understand what salt represented and how valuable salt was in Jesus' day, it begins to change how we see these words of Christ here. It has not always been the case that salt is cheaply bought at the grocery store. Salt at the time of Jesus' incarnation, or the time of Jesus' incarnation, was so much more important and so much more valuable in the minds of the people then than it is for us today. Did you know that there was a time in world history when salt was more valuable than gold? 
Wow. Salt was for a time used in the way that we use money today. People with salt used it to pay for goods and services from others. Salt mobilized and necessitated the great European empires in their expansion efforts. One of the major reasons, we don't hear this a lot, but one of the major reasons for attacking and colonizing other nations was for increased access to salt. And during the American Revolution, one of the primary strategies of the British Army was to blockade and keep salt from the Americans. Cities have been named for their access to salt. Salt Lake City, Utah, for example. Entire economies throughout world history have been built around and maintained by an abundance of salt. One major example being that of Venice. You guys heard of Venice? It used to be a, 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 quite a, a wealthy and prosperous city. And that wealth and prosper, prosperity wasn't built primarily on gold and silver, but a great share of the prosperity and affluence came from its salt. And Poland in the 16th century was a great empire. Why? How? It had a number of salt mines in its geographic region. Salt has led nations to war. Salt has been one of our world's most important trade commodities through history. Salt has even in, impacted the way our language works. You ever heard the phrase, that guy, not worth his salt? You ever heard that phrase? Where did that come from? How did we get that phrase? We got it from the Roman Empire. During those times, Roman soldiers were paid partly with salt. It was a practice called solarium argentum. Now, solarium, or solarium argentum, solarium is the word for salt. And it's that word uh, to back to which we derive our word salary. So the word salary that we use today is derived from the word salt. If in, and, in, and in this day, if a Roman soldier wasn't particularly adept, wasn't very useful, wasn't very beneficial to the military, the Roman leadership would say, that guy's not worth his salt. Salt, according to a number of historians, might very well be the most important mineral in the world's history. While we might think that gold or silver or some other precious metal is, without salt all of us would be dead. Does that give us an example of how important salt is? Salt is one of the world's most important and valuable commodities. It is necessary. It is important. It is indispensable to the flourishing and to the survival of humanity. And this is not an overstatement. Without salt, life on planet Earth would end. And in the 1930s, a, a doctor decided to, a respected doctor decided to, te to test four volunteers. And what was the test, you ask? It's a good question. What would happen to the human body if it went 10 days without salt? 10 days. Doesn't seem like that long of a time, does it? 10 days. So the volunteers went through this process of sweating out the salt from their bodies. And once that was completed, they went 10 days with no salt. Within just a few days, they experienced major, massive fatigue. They were too tired, the scientist tells us, to even lift the food that they were eating to their mouths. And then something called hypo, hyponatremia hit, 
Because salt, because salt actually regulates the amount of water our cells consume, when salt is absent, our cells consume too much water and they start to swell. And that, left unchecked, leads to seizures, leads to comas, and ultimately leads to death. These four volunteers, with just going 10 days without salt, suffered greatly. And if they would have gone on longer, extreme headaches, horrific vomiting, ex extreme fatigue would have continued, would have set in. And when the 10 days were done, when the 10 days were done, they were given salty foods, and within minutes, all of those difficulties vanished. Without salt, they would have deteriorated and died. So you see, the significance of an influence of salt upon all facets of the world we live in from the workings of our body to the mobilization of nations to the way we use language cannot be overstated. If we didn't have salt, we'd all be dead, along with all the plants and all the animals. Without salt, our climate would go haywire. Salt is significant, which is why Jesus chose salt as the metaphor here. He chose salt as a metaphor for his people as they represent him and live for him in this world. Look at the phrase again. You are the salt of the earth. That you there, Y-O-U, is, is an emphatic you, meaning you and you alone are the salt of the, of the earth. Those who truly love Jesus, those who are true subjects of King Jesus, you and you only are salt the salt of the world. You and you alone are the only salt, spiritually speaking, in the world. So the fact that you and I and all who truly follow Jesus Christ are alone salt among all the peoples of the world indicates that the function of the believer in this world is exceedingly important, far more important than we think. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, there's been a number of ideas and a number of explanations that have been suggested to explain what Christ is saying here. And I think all of them have some validity, all of them have some value, and when you take them all together, they do a wonderful job of describing, right? You've heard somebody, some people say that uh, salt provokes thirst. By our lives and by our dedication to righteousness, we lead other people to want to know what it is that gives us joy, and so we provoke in them a spiritual thirst. Yes, Salt savors and adds flavor to that which is otherwise bland. You know, believers in the world, we, we add a zest to life. But I think the primary picture that Christ is painting here is that of preservation from decay. Salt preserves from decay. Salt is an agent of preservation. Salt is an antiseptic. Salt was used in this day to prevent food from rotting and decomposing. So the idea here is that you, Christian, and you alone are an agent of preservation among all the peoples of the earth. Does that sound important? God's people, by their prayers, by their exhortations, by their encouragements to the world to look to Christ, to repent of sin, all of this functions as a deterrent to the world's deterioration. And not only that, but your very presence in this world is a preservation for the world. 
You remember, right? It was Abraham, God's man, Abraham, who stood before the Lord and interceded on behalf of Sodom. Do you remember that narrative? That wicked and rebellious and unhesitatingly sinful city of Sodom. That city, when the angels from heaven were, were down here, they turned and they went to scout it out. Because in Genesis 18, 20 and 21, we read that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great and their sin was very grave. And so the Lord went down to see whether they deserved the destruction in accordance with the outcry that had come out against them. It was Abraham who, knowing the evil the Lord would find there, that interceded on behalf of that city. And here's what happened. If you look at Genesis 18, 22 to 33, we're going to spend just a minute there, so if you want to flip there, that's a good thing. It says this, The men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find that Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, and the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he, Abraham, spoke to the Lord and said, Suppose 40, suppose 40 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he, Abraham, said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose, suppose 30 are found there. And he, the Lord, answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he, Abraham, said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he, the Lord, answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he, Abraham, said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he, the Lord, answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, when he had, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Did you catch what was happening there? The Lord made it abundantly clear to Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom on one condition. He find or found a small number of righteous people there. Righteous people in that city would have preserved that city from destruction. Abraham sought to preserve Sodom by intervening on its behalf in prayer and his appeal was that the Lord might spare the city. If he found any righteous people in it, whether it be 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, or 10, 
And each time the Lord made it clear, I will spare the whole place. I will spare the entire city of my devastating judgments upon their sin for the sake of righteous people in it. Look at 18.26 again. If I find 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place because of it. And again in verse 29, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. In verse 31, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. In verse 32, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Over and over and over again, the Lord makes it crystal clear. The, the, the city would be preserved on account of the righteous in the city if righteous people were found there. The righteous function as a preservative in the cities in which they live. Now listen, don't let the world's consistent attempts to make you feel, look, and think that you are dumb cause you to lose sight of the importance of your presence in, to, and for these places in which you live. They might not know it or accept it, but they are blessed by our presence. The world is blessed and preserved as a result of the presence of Christians in it. We are for the good of our cities. We are for the flourishing of our towns and our villages. And you might not see it, and the world might not know it, but many times the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is averted and held back because... There are righteous people living there. You are important to the cultures, cities, towns, nations, provinces, states in which you live. But it's not simply just the presence of believers that preserves, but also the actions of the believers who live in those cities. As we call people to repentance, it is Christ's people who labor to keep the world from destroying itself. Have you ever wondered, as you look out on the world and see the things that the world loves, why can't they get their minds straight? If you keep following this road, you are going to implode upon yourself. Who are the ones... Answer, who are the ones that are always in charge or in the front or at the vanguard of fights against the mass slaughter of unborn children in their countries? Who is it? Who are the ones consistently fighting to preserve God's will for and definition of marriage? Who are the ones that are at the front who have been constantly warning the world of the slippery slopes of disobedience to God for the last 2,000 years? Who are the ones loudly crying against, out against this culture's obsession with transgenderism and transitioning children against their best interests? What a world we live in. We need Christians in this world to live and act and operate in this world, to perform their essential and basic function of being salt in this world. It's for this reason that the world doesn't know any better that the metaphor of salt is used to describe the highly valuable and, and important function that you, Christian, play in this world by your presence, by your prayers, by your interventions, 
by your dedication to righteousness and righteous living, by your calls to repentance, all of these act as a preservative to, for, and among the peoples of the earth. And if not for you, there would be no salt. Jesus continued in verse 13 saying, But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now some will assume that this phrase refers to true believers who turn back from following Christ, but that's not what is intended here. The idea is that it is an absolute and utter contradiction to claim that you're salt but not have the essential characteristics of salt. Pure salt does not lose its saltiness. Unsalty salt is a contradiction. However, there are a number of people who claim to be salt and yet live a life that completely lacks any saltiness or any of the functions or essential natures or attributes of salt. You can tell if salt is real, right? How? You taste it. You taste salt and you know that it's real. In like manner, you can tell if a believer is true, if a believer is pure in heart by their commitment to living as a preservative in this world. There are a number of tares among the wheat in God's church. There are a, num there are a number of soils upon which the seed of the gospel has been cast that sprout up and for a time look like wheat but when push comes to shove, instead of functioning as a preservative, instead of tasting and being pure salt, they live just like the world and prove to be nothing more than a counterfeit, a contaminated counterfeit. Only true salt was of any value. And in the regions where Jesus ministered among the Jewish peoples, there was a tremendous amount of salt such as that around the shores of the Dead Sea that was contaminated with a number of other minerals that ruined the taste. This salt wasn't pure salt. It wasn't real and true salt. And it was quite common at times for such salt to actually find its way into people's homes. But then, when people would take it out and use it, immediately, this tastes terrible. It's not real salt. And what would they do when they detected such contaminated, fake, phony salt? They would throw it out. Why? Because it was useless. Actually, it was worse than useless. Because you couldn't take that salt and just simply toss it out into the field or toss it out into your garden or toss it out into the, the land because it would kill everything that was planted there. Such salt, instead of preserving, performed the opposite function. It actually corroded everything. And so it had to be thrown specifically onto the roads and the pathways to be trampled into the dirt where it would fade into that same dirt. Such contamination kept the salt from being pure right from the outset and made it worthless. So believer, know this. The people of the earth left to their own devices cannot do anything other than increase in wickedness. The Apostle Paul wrote this very thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, saying, Evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do you claim to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, your function in this world is to be salt in it and to it. 
You are salt in the wounds of the world. Now, you know that salt in the wounds is painful, right? That's where we get the phrase. It's like rubbing salt in the wounds because it's painful. And it evokes a response. But it is through your saltiness that God makes his appeal to the world. Be reconciled to me through faith in my son. And while salt in the wounds is painful, for those who have eyes to see, it is an antiseptic. It is a disinfectant that treats and works to prevent infections. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and your life is not one of saltiness and preservation in the world, but is instead one of surrender and yielding to the world, one of being like the world, one of compromising with the world, one of being a friend to the world in the sense that you love it and want to be accepted by it, then you have no function. You are unsalted salt compromised salt and according to Jesus not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet even worse that's not the half of it even worse your presence as one who claims to love Christ and yet avoids the essential characteristic of saltiness means that you are actually a corrosive influence to the world like the compromised salt found around the Dead Sea just Think about the number of people you know that you've tried to minister to and witness to who despise God's word, despise God's church as a direct result, a direct result of those who claim to follow Christ but really live for the world. Has anyone ever come across that in their efforts to minister to people? Think about how many people refuse to love Christ because there are those who claim to be leaders in the church who are obviously in it for financial gain, who are obviously in it for power, obviously in it for influence. These are corrosive influences. So which will you be? The choice is set before you. Will you be a true follower of Christ who functions as a preservative among the peoples of the earth? Or are you a counterfeit, compromised pretender claiming to be a follower, but nothing more than contaminated salt, fit to be thrown out, cast away, or discarded? If you find yourself in the second category, I urge you to truly come to Christ in faith and be the salt of the earth. So that's the first essential function of the Christian, to be salt. But Jesus gives us another essential function in verse 14. Look at it. You are the light of the world. Again, the you here is an emphatic you, meaning you, plural, you, true believers. You alone are the light of the world. The idea here is that there is no light in this world aside from the light that is provided to it by Christians and the Christian faith in it. And the light here refers to the bearers or the bringers of that which illuminates the soul. The proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul, you remember, when called by the Lord into his service, was commissioned to do among the Gentiles. This is what all of us are commissioned to do in the world. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. This is Acts 26, 18. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
that the world needs this light implies that the world on its own is dark, right? Filled with people walking in darkness. Filled with those who dwell in darkness, who are spiritually, spiritually lost and confused. As Jesus puts it in John 12 when he says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. This is the state of the world that we live in. They walk in darkness and they don't know where they are going and so they need the light cast in the world to them by believers. And the Lord is gracious. He has always had light in the world. He has always had light to illumine the, illuminate the path to abundant life in Him. You remember back in the Old Testament, it was Israel. The Lord called Israel to be the light to the world, the light to the nations. In uh, the Psalms, King David actually says that the Word of God is, referred, is, is a light. You see in Psalm 119, 105, one of our favorite verses, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And when Christ walked the earth during his incarnation, he declared quite explicitly and quite clearly in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now Christ, having accomplished the salvation of all who believe by taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us, by living his, the perfect and sinless life that, has re, that is required by any and all who would be righteous before God and applying that perfection to those who call upon him in faith. Christ, by his wrath-absorbing, penalty-paying death in our place. Christ, by his resurrection and display of victory over the powers of sin and death. Christ, by his ascension back to the right hand of God the Father where he currently sits, making continual intercession on behalf of his people, has given his children the role of light in, light of, and light for the world. The Apostle Paul called on the Philippian believers in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, listen, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you shine as lights. The world is dark and there are lights in it and the lights that shine in the world are Christ's people. By virtue of our connection to Christ, who is the light of the world, as a result of our faith in him, who is the light of the world, we become, according to John 12, 36, sons of light or children of light and are commanded then to walk in that light and to function as transmitters or reflectors of that light to the world. That is our task as light to the world. We reflect the beautiful light of Christ to it. Now, what is the task or the purpose of light? Simply to shine. And when light shines, what happens? Darkness is dispelled. Why do we flick the lights on when we walk into our houses at night when it's dark? So we can see and we don't stub our toes on something on the way to our rooms or our living room or whatever, right? Because we know without light we can't see. And the longer that people sit in darkness, the more difficult it is to see, isn't it? Now, getting up this morning, it's starting to be a little bit darker in the morning, right? Getting up this morning after a night of sleep, 
walking to the washroom to get ready for the morning, and you flick on the light. Oh, oh, my goodness, it's bright, right? That's what happens. The longer you are in the darkness, the more difficult it is to look at that light. But eventually, if the light keeps shining, the light keeps shining, what happens to your eyes? You can see. I've actually heard it said that, and I don't know if this is true or not, I heard people talking to me one time about a cave that they went to that was so completely dark that if you spent three days in it, you could go blind. Now, this world is like that cave. Dark, spiritually dark, filled with blind people. And so we are called to live in light in this world in order to start opening their eyes so that they are no longer blind, but they begin to see. And so how do we live as that light in this world? First, first, by obeying Christ's command to each and every one of us. His mission for the church. It's never changed from the day that Jesus instituted it until now. This is how we function primarily as light in this world. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus commanded his disciples, saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are the marching orders. This is how we shine the light into the world. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it, You, believers, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that's the Lord's own possession, that you may proclaim, you hear that word, that is a, a, a speaking word, a speaking forth word, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The light strives in this world to make disciples, proclaiming to those who dwell in darkness the wonders of Jesus Christ, announcing to the world in darkness the joys and the delights of living in his marvelous light. The light cries out to the world, repent and believe the gospel. That is shining and living as light in this world. Now, there's a, just a side note. This means that you yourself must have a good grasp of the gospel if you're going to preach it. If you don't have a good grasp of the gospel, then you aren't proclaiming that gospel and you're not serving one of your essential functions in this world. So if you're going to put your energies into learning anything, let it be the good news of Jesus Christ. Because this is, according to Christ, one of the essential functions and purposes for our short time here on earth. Light calls people to faith. Light calls people to obedience to Christ. And we also, however, as the light of Christ, not only do we proclaim, but we also endeavor to live bright lives that represent Christ well and avoiding the works of darkness. So we live bright lives and we avoid the works of darkness. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers saying this, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Light walks as light. Light discerns what is pleasing to the Lord. Light avoids the unfruitful works of darkness and instead exposes those unfruitful works. This is our function. This is our basic purpose while we are here. If we are not warning the world, if we are not calling the world to repentance and faith, if we aren't declaring the wonders of Christ and the benefits of holiness, who will? Who will? If it's not you and if it's not me, who will? No one. Because you and you alone, believer, are the light of the world. There is no light in this world aside from the people of Christ. Therefore, your role in this world as a child of light is vitally important. And Jesus continues in verse 14, saying, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The idea being that a true believer, one who truly functions as light in the world, is wonderfully obvious. When one truly comes to faith in Christ, they become as visible, they become as noticeable, they become as evident as a city set on a hill. You can't hide cities on a hill. It cannot be hidden. It cannot be concealed. It cannot be put out of sight. No, it sits there, vibrant, bright, in plain view of all, unmistakable. And in like manner, True salvation, truly becoming a child of the light brings about a change in us that cannot be denied. A change that cannot be hidden. A contrast like that between a city on a hill that is there for everyone to see and a city on a plain that gets mixed up with all of the other cities. One is hidden, one is clearly visible. The lights of a city on a hill cannot be missed. This phrase that Jesus uses here is designed or meant to bring out or to illuminate us to the foolishness of assuming that we are truly saved if we constantly strive to hide our light from everyone. No, the true city on a hill, look at the word, cannot. You see that there? Cannot be hidden. We shine as lights in life and in word by basic necessity of being children of Christ. This is one of our functions in the world. Do not get sidetracked and do not fool yourself. And Christ continues, right? He says, not only is the true light obvious, they also recognize the foolishness of claiming to be light and then trying to cover that light. See that in verse 15? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. It makes no sense, does it, to walk into your house when it's dark, turn on the light, and then hurry up and cover it, does it? Does that make any sense? No. It's almost like Jesus is being a little comedic here, right? Like, just think about it, guys. He's trying to get us to understand how absurd this is, how senseless this is. And he applies it to those who claim to love Christ and shine as lights to the world. For anyone to claim to love Jesus, for anyone to claim to be a child of light, but then spend more time trying to hide that light under a basket as they live and move and work in this world is, according to Jesus here, preposterous. The Christian that truly loves Jesus has no desire to hide his or her light. But instead, look what Jesus says, they set it on a stand for everyone to see. 
And it lights up the whole house. The Christian, the true Christian, has no desire to hide their faith or to cover up their faith for any worldly gain, for any increased worldly comforts, to avoid any suffering or persecution. To avoid, they do not hide their lights in order to get ahead in this world. In fact, know this. Know this clearly, that it is always and only Satan who stands at the ready with basket in hand to give you. It is always the devil offering us the basket with which to hide our light. And he is always there, ready to present you with the basket. Don't take it. Don't hide your light for any reason. To do that is to be unfaithful to your essential function in this world. Instead, put your light on a stand where it gives light and shines brightly for all to see, for everyone in the house to see. There, let it openly shine for everyone, Christian. To do otherwise is the same as being unsalty salt. It is living in a worthless manner. In fact, if you are more apt to cover up your light in this world rather than live and shine brightly for Jesus, you might just be a worldling that is claiming faith. Is that you? You might very well be deceived, and so the call goes out to you this morning to truly repent and believe in Christ. So Jesus has here declared the function of believers in this world. Salt and light. This is what we are. And now in verse 16, Christ moved from declaring our function to commanding us to live it out, saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others. This is a command here. Go and influence the world. Live as light in the presence of the peoples of the world. The light you bring helps those in darkness to find their way to salvation in Christ. This world is in desperate need of brilliantly blazing lights, inflamed, lighting everything up for people to see. And while there are many who will recoil at the sight of the light that you shine, and they will respond negatively, perhaps even abusively, to the light that you shine, there are those who will see your light and hear your proclamations of Christ and see your life lived in obedience to Him, and they will respond as Christ says next, listen, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that worth everything that we endure? Your light shining in an obvious manner will lead some to see your good works, your morally excellent deeds, your lifestyle of obedience, the beauty and the attractiveness of Christ in you. And they will respond by exalting and praising the Lord. And isn't this the goal for everything we do? Isn't this the very reason for our existence in this world? To both praise and exalt and magnify our Lord and lead others to praise and exalt and magnify our good, great, glorious, and gracious God? Yes. This is our primary goal. Not to bring attention to ourselves, not to get ahead in this world, but to live as salt preserving the world and light proclaiming to the world and living in the world 
and in so doing, revealing to the world the wonders and the honor and the glories of God. This is your high calling, saints. This is our high calling, believer, fellow believer. His glory. And anytime we cover, we are in essence, anytime we grab that bushel and put it over, we are in essence declaring that his glory is secondary to our momentary worldly desire. And that is a terrible evil that must be repented of. We live here to inspire people to give glory to our Father in heaven. So, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you living in accordance with your function and purpose on earth? Are you salt? A preserving influence among the peoples? Are you light, shining brightly, exposing the darkness, and pointing people to the source of that light? Living a morally excellent life that leads others to see the beauty of Christ in you, that inspires them to give glory to the Lord as a result? Is that you? If not, it's not too late. You're here. You're breathing. You're alive. Wonder of wonders. Glory of glories. You can at this very moment plead with the Lord for the power of his Holy Spirit to inspire these essential functions in you. Lord, let me be salt in this world. Let me be light in this world. Give me the power to do this. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want you to be central in my life. I don't want to be a car that doesn't drive or paper towels that don't absorb. I want to be a phone that communicates and scissors that actually cut. I don't want to be useless salt. I don't want to be contaminated salt. I don't want to hide my light under a basket. Instead, Lord, please empower us. Empower me. Right? These are prayers we can be asking the Lord to live according to your reason for my being in this world. Plead with the Lord for courage to live in this world as salt and courage to live in this world as light. And always remember in closing that you and I are merely pilgrims passing through here. This is not our home. Our home is yet to come and boy, oh boy, is it going to be great, Right? Yeah. So don't get so rooted down here that you forget your function in this world. Salt and light. Salt and light that leads others to give glory to your Father in heaven. Father, we praise you and we thank you and we exalt you. And Lord, we know that as we work through this sermon, the greatest sermon ever Uh, declared and ever proclaimed the sermon that comes from the lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we know that it is penetrating it is cutting it is difficult and Lord as we work our way through it we realize that every single one of us falls so short of what you are proclaiming in this sermon Lord I know that there are times in my life when I failed to be as salty as I should or as light, uh, as blazing as I should. I know that for my brothers and sisters here in this sanctuary, I know that they can all say the same. And so I pray and I plead for your forgiveness for each and every one of us 
And I pray and plead for your empowerment that we might perform our basic duty and function in this world to live in it as salt and light so that you might be glorified, that you might be magnified, you might be exalted by our lives, our words, our deeds, and everything we do while we're here. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.